Inescapably foreign. Welcome to Without Borders. I'm your host, Nolan Yuma. I usually start off the show saying that this is the podcast for nomads, expats, refugees, immigrants, and anyone else that feels inescapably foreign. Of course, that usually involves people that have traveled or lived in different countries, but sometimes you can feel inescapably foreign without having lived in different countries. And that's the case with one of my best friends in the world, Usman Raza, who is here on the show today. And uh, well, Usman, you're one of my, you've been one of my best friends for almost 15 years now, and I still don't know if I'm pronouncing your last name, <laughs> your first name correctly, because your white friends and your brown friends all just mix it up. And at this point, you just don't seem to care anymore. But uh, the last name's good. It, it's it's a Raza. Raza. It's the first Raza. thing you guys all get wrong. It's not Usman, it's Usman. Usman, Usman. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I think at this point you just kind of gave up. Yeah, it's people. not worth the trouble. It's not worth the trouble. On the phone at work, it's not worth going, no, it's Usman. Usman is fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, what about people at work? What do they say? Usman, Usman. I get like people use my last name as a first name all the time, like on emails. I, mean, I just, I don't even bother to fight anymore. I just sign my email off the right way. It's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> and just so the listeners know, what what are you doing for work right now? Uh, I just started work as a product manager for a healthcare company. So that's like three weeks, man. It's brand new. Still learning the role. Nice. And um, how does your family feel about it? Are they supportive of the work or does your oh, dad proud, come? man? Yeah. They're proud. They, it, and like, I guess like the whole aim was to work in healthcare as a doctor that was the that was the a plan and i fell short of that but uh, i don't think i've ever heard them say they're proud but i uh, i hear them talk about me in the back like uh, if they're talking about what i do for work to other people and i know they're happy at least i'm, I'm making money and i work in healthcare i'm very content that my education paid off do, do you think that's a common thing that um, brown parents don't say that they're proud of their kids or i don't i can't think of a single brown parent that says that they're proud of their kids and that they love their kids <laughs> if you talk to anybody anybody they're like yeah we don't, we don't say that we don't express love it's always like in the back backheaded ways that you'll feel it and know it what what are some of those ways <sighs> it's tough man like how do i know I guess like the absence of criticism, <laughs> the absence of um, something negative. It's tough. It's really hard to explain. You just know the it. absence of criticism feels like, oh, I love you. Pretty much, man. If you're not if you're not in trouble, you're doing good. And, well, because you grew up in the West. Um, oh, well, just so the listeners know, we grew up in a pretty small town. Um, how many people live in Vernon? Like fifty. Okay. And this is in North America and Canada and British Columbia. Um, we were pretty lucky that we went to a pretty diverse high school considering the town that we lived in. Like I, I remember when we first went to Fulton, that was a school. Um, just so people know <laughs> it was 60 different nationalities that went there. 60. And, that's crazy. I know to me, it sounds like a lot, but I, I'm, that number's in my head and it kind of makes sense if you start thinking about all the different people that were there and it, you think about like the exchange students that also come for like a year or two years um but since you were since you grew up in the west did uh, did you feel like your parents loved you less because they just didn't express it as much as like the white parents would do around the kids or i wouldn't say so i feel like growing up you don't know any different like uh and like when you grow up in or when you're from a different culture and you grow up in the west like the culture you grow up in is kind of everything like i remember i had my own life at home especially when you're first growing up and you like you don't have many outside friends you just have your family and that's what it is like i remember i had what life was and then i went to school to hang out with white people <laughs> you guys and then um 
as the years went on, it like transitioned to the other way around where like majority of my life became what it was with friends and less so at home. But uh, in the beginning, it's like your family, it's the only kind of love you know. Like you know that your dad loves you, you know that your mom loves you, but they show it in a different way that you see on TV, what Western culture is. Uh, you just know things and feel things. It, it does feel unconditional in a way, but it's just not like, oh, I love you, son. Like, oh, great job. Like, it's not that. It's it's hard to put your finger on. You just know these things. <laughs> yeah. Does it even seem fake to you sometimes when people say, like, I love you all the time? Because it's thrown around quite easily. Because even <laughs> me is. as... Even me from, like, Belgium, uh, we don't say I love you to each other. Like, you know, it, it, usually when you talk to someone uh, in Canada... And your family, you always end the conversation saying, I love you. And I do that with my parents too now, just because I grew up with it. But I would never say I love you to my grandma or to my cousins, because that would just be so weird to say at the end of the conversation. And I think I did it once by accident. And like my uncle was just like, uh, uh, bye. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> of course, I love you. You don't need to say it. And <laughs> I could see it being a little bit exhausting. Like, I mean, reserved for special people only in your life. Like, I have a daughter. She's two. I tell her I love her all the time. Um, but, uh, like, to my parents, I can't remember if I've ever seen that to my parents. It's just... What about your brother or cousins? Oh, in special moments, my brothers and cousins, I'll say them too. But special moments, like heartfelt moments. But, like, not, like, all the time on the phone. Um yeah, it's just it's the culture. We don't we don't say that. We just don't say it. it. It's it would be awkward for me to start saying it now and like the on the end of like phone sign offs. Um, but like I've been in like a long relationship, right, where I was married, and then there I said it like all the time, um, and it didn't really lose value or faith. But yeah, just with the parents, parents we we never did, so it'd be weird to start. Yeah, and. Oh, also with your cousins and brother, um, you do do you really differentiate between your brother and your cousin when you were in the household, or because of the the words that you use, isn't it the same word you use for brother and for cousin? Well, we don't re- well like for our for our situations. Like I grew up in like a traditional uh, uh, South Asian household. Like we had at one point, we had three families living in one house in a duplex in Mission Hill, um, and so at one point there were, so we had two extra families and they each had three kids, so three plus three plus my brother and I, so six, seven, eight, eight kids all in one a duplex, in a duplex at one point. Yeah, we were all all the kids were born into that house. So those ones that I grew up with. I call them cousins, but really, like, they're siblings. They all call me, like, Bai, Usman Bai, which is, like, brother Usman. That's what um, I was getting at. Yeah. So, like, for me, they're all, like, sisters and brothers to me. Uh, when I'm calling them, it doesn't really feel, like, any different. And still, like, one set, one family lives with us still. And they're all they're all sisters to me. Yeah. And you were the oldest, right? By a long shot, man. Like, my brother, who's closest to me in age, is nine years younger than me. And then I think the youngest now in the family is, um, what is she, in, like, grade four? Grade four, she's probably in. So I don't know what that makes her, like, 10? 10? So they range from, like, 10 to 21 right now. And I'm 30. That's a big spread. And that also put you higher up on the the family hierarchy, of course, right? Absolutely, so, man. I'm like a liaison uncle. Like, <laughs> I get, I'm like I'm like halfway between adults and like halfway between the kids. It's great. What what were some of the pros and cons, or in other words, like the the responsibilities, but then also the, um, yeah, the responsibilities, and then also maybe a little bit more of the freedom you had as being the oldest, or did you have less freedom being the oldest? I feel like the the con would have been like having the the first nine years of my life be an only child. Like I didn't get that sibling rivalry or like that experience where like you have someone to play with as a kid. And so I got to like go through that whole period 
being an only child and then come nine years old I have a brother and then I got to play like older sibling but significantly older sibling where you just want to like care and like I don't know how make the the brother's life like more fun and like share everything because you're excited to do it um but uh pros is like you get to <laughs> almost be like a like a fun uncle you get to plan the games you can do whatever you want to do um and uh they all especially when they were kids they just like wanted someone to organize things and have fun like together as a family and i got to play that role which was pretty cool um yeah i mean those are kind of it like now that they're older like they have their own stuff going on and i'm like this in between like adults and like above but do you still get more respect from them do you find I definitely did, and I definitely do still now, but probably not as much as I did then. Now I'm like I'm like another adult, and also now like they're in their like late teens and early twenties. Now it's like I'm I'm chopped liver to them, and now they doing their own independent thing. I'm sure it'll come around when they're like in their mid twenties or late twenties. Uh, but, but do you like, think that's the I'm Western like, influence of? Where they're raised. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. They stopped calling me Oswan by now they just call me Oswan, which is like uh not disrespectful, but like their parents are like, come on, he's your elder. You should be saying Oswan by but they don't care anymore. Now they're more more Western than anything. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's more the transition, the age that they're in right now. Um but they'll come around. They'll come around. Yeah. Well, we've we've talked about that a lot, right? How when we sometimes hear women talk to their mothers especially like western canadian women talking to their mothers and being like mom you're a bitch and like to you and i that's just complete that's just one of the most awful things you could say or even do right calling your mom a bitch and it's so common because you you've heard it a bunch i've heard it a bunch and I kind of wish that we had a little bit more of this hierarchical culture, even though I'm someone that is like such an egalitarian, I have some, so many egalitarian views. I kind of see how this hierarchy can be beneficial in some cases because, yeah. Man, I I can't remember a single time I've raised my voice at my mom or dad. Like never, never. Even if I disagree with a parent, like I might not say it. Uh, let alone calling them anything or telling them to shut up. Like the amount of, I don't know if I've actually seen it in person, but like telling your parents to be quiet or shut up, or you're annoying. Not happening, man. Not happening in our culture. Uh, and I think it's good. Like you can disagree with your parents, but you don't have to like outwardly tell them and like fight with them. Definitely. Um, well, yeah, for me, it's like ingrained not to yell at my mom. Um, and also I, I rarely have any reason to. Uh, my dad and I, I've, I've been too disrespectful. Like there are times where I think, oh my God, why, why did I yell that loud? But it almost feels like there's just so much testosterone in the atmosphere. <laughs> and I know you're someone with a shit ton of testosterone. Like you can, you can flip out even though you're usually a really calm and collected guy. Um, is that one of the reasons you think you got into martial arts sports? Uh, I don't know why I got into martial arts. I feel like. Like, you know the journey better than most people, man. Like, what was it, grade 11? Whereas it's like, oh, this is a cool little place to work out. Look at Nolan. He's building some muscle. And then I just got into, like, weightlifting to avoid being super scrawny. And then I just saw, like, a boxing class getting run at my, my weightlifting gym. And I was like, I'm big, but I don't know how to fight at all. And I always liked, like, boxing and, uh, like, MMA and watching the UFC. So I just kind of like took a little baby step towards it and did a little bit of boxing and you know, jiu-jitsu. And now I do it more than anything just because it's the best workout. Like when it comes to um, like flexibility, strength, and cardio, it's a perfect balance. And uh, I don't know, I like fighting. I like having like a little bit of like an aggression outlet that you can't really get in other sports. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know about the high testosterone drive to do it. Like there is something like competitive and like fun and, uh, about it. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just I can't replace it. Would you consider yourself violent? Because I like in Shantaram, yeah, I know it's one of the books you like as well, and I, I used to like it quite a bit. Um, yeah, what's one of the quotes? He says, working out or going to the gym is a violent man's meditation. <laughs> and 
I've never really considered myself violent, but I can be hot tempered. And sometimes the gym does feel like meditation. And I mean, you and you and I were like the the two most muscular guys in uh, at the end of school because you guys like we were always at the gym at the end of school, right? Um, but I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that. I, I don't know if I was a violent person because I've rarely gotten fights. I don't think you have gotten in many fights other than when they're organized or or with a very close friend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I. I, I don't know if I consider myself a violent person. I feel like um, everyone has it in them to, like, slip out and get angry. And then, like, in boxing or, like, jiu-jitsu, you can, like, kind of act out on that. And it feels like you're actually uh, a little more violent and aggressive. And even at the gym, like, you know, right before bench press, like, you, you get all hyped up and you're ready to really push push out that weight. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call it violent. It's more like a like an aggression you're, you're letting out, like a burning off of steam. But as for violent, like, I don't think I'm ever uncontrolled where I'm like, I'm unhinged and I'm ready to, on rare occasions I might be, but like where I'm unhinged and like ready to like rep and be violent. I wouldn't consider myself that kind of a person. I'm usually quite calm, like as you are too, right? I think it's lucky because we we're both incredibly disciplined, right? Like we were those people, even when we were just super tired or had a bunch of work to do, we would always just still, okay, no, no, I have to go to the gym today. No, I have to study for this many hours because I have to be at the top 10% of my class or something, right? We were yeah. out of those, <laughs> those guys. And the gym, like you and I, like we, we are, we feel better after it more than anything. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, like I don't want to go, but like, I know I'm going to feel better. I know this is what I want to do. And so it's a, it's a bit of a mix. It's like, fighting through the grogginess to get there. It it always ends up paying off and you feel better afterwards. Um, and the alternative, like to not go for a week, you feel awful, right? So it's one of those things that just like, you gotta go. Yeah. Uh, um, oh, this is bringing it into a different direction. <laughs> I'm feeling like Joe, Ro- uh, Joe Rogan right now. We're talking about the gym and now I'm about to ask a question about political correctness. TRT, TRT and... <laughs> is that the testosterone therapy? Yeah, uh, lead. <laughs> we'll stay away from that. Uh, we'll we'll get years. back into culture. <laughs> um, oh, but, so you mentioned Mission Hill. And throughout high school, I never used the term, but so many people would use it, both brown people and white people, Curry Hill. Oh, right? yeah. That's a common one. How do you, how do you feel about that? Like now the landscape is quite a bit more politically correct. I don't know if that term is still used, but our gym teachers would even use that, right? Like <laughs> if, you, if you don't, if you fuck up boys, you're running up Curry Hill. <laughs> you know? yeah, that's the right demographic for that word. And how do you feel about it? Like, do you think since that was so common and like almost accepted at the school, at least among like the gym teachers and like the sport community and stuff, do you think that marginalized people in a way, or do you just think, and I don't know, is just that's just the way it is, or? Well, like, you know me, like I, I'm not, I'm not a very like PC leaning type person. In my head, like words are just words, uh, like to some degree, uh, it's not true. Um, but like as for Curry Hill and like Mission Hill itself, I uh, I never felt like anything was like a worthwhile jab at at us, at the people that live there to get upset about. Like mm-hmm. Mission Hill, we uh, we were such a like diverse uh, elementary school. We had a mural, and in that mural, I don't think there was a single white person on that mural. There might have been might have been one just for just for measure. But yeah, it was just like um like a like a Sikh boy, uh, some other um Asian boy and a, and a black boy. Like they just it's all multicultural. That's what was the emphasis on living in that area. And like Curry Hill, I mean, the, the, the name came because it's kind of like what you smelt walking up and down the streets. And it was the best. Like, nothing to be upset about, Curry Hill. Yeah, I, it's hard to get upset at those things. Like there wasn't very much that triggered me ever in high school or even here in the lower mainland. Like I don't get upset by racism. And I could be just quite lucky in that I'm um, brought up here and I'm don't feel like strongly threatened by anything but mm-hmm. yeah man I'm, I'm not very easily offended when it comes to racist jokes 
Yeah. Yeah. But again, racist jokes are a little bit different than, than racism. I, some people will probably argue True. that and say like, yes, it is. And it, and it can perpetuate violence, but I don't know. Like we, I don't, I don't, that's why I'm asking you because I, I want to know about your experience or any, anyone else around you. Like, did you ever hear about that? Like, oh, because I'm a brown person in Vernon, I have certain disadvantages. Uh, did, did you ever hear about that? Or was that, was that in the conversation in the community? No, never, never. Like, I mean, the conversation, if anything was in the conversation in our community, was that um like the brown community and the white community are different we just do things differently like like white people have their way of life like you guys have uh i don't know have animals in the house and then brown people be like well that's terrible like how could they do that um but like each had their own and it was never a disadvantage to be one or the other you were just one or the other yeah um and white people would talk about brown people like oh they do these things this way and then vice versa so like us being uh, born here and raised here, just like it's kind of funny that each person looks at the other and they're like, "Oh, that's weird," but really it's just their own. Uh, and it was never a disadvantage, I would say, ever in elementary school and high school. It almost felt like, at least I felt like it was, uh, it was a good thing to be a little bit different. I felt special having a, like a different culture than the one I would be going to school in. Yeah, never a disadvantage. And. I think that is in part because Mission Hill, the elementary school, and then Fulton, the high school, because uh, when I went to Fulton, it didn't matter that I was this Belgian kid who spoke a couple different languages and dressed a little different and stuff. But in elementary school, I didn't go to Mission Hill. I went to Kitston and Coldstream. And that was a different story. Like I'm, I'm a white kid and I felt like I experienced a sort of racism there. I guess not racism, but like a sort of prejudice because I had like Nutella sandwiches. They would call those shit sandwiches and then they would like steal my lunch and throw it in the garbage. And like, I would just get bullied all the time. Um, and like, I remember, you know, th things would happen like where the, t the teachers, they just didn't even, it didn't even click how bullied i was like, i remember once um every every name of the student in the class was written on the board and then there was like an anonymous vote right to see like who could be um uh, i don't know what it was like class president or something or something it was for a small activity and i'm the oh, i was the only person that didn't get a vote and when I like, I asked the teacher, I was like, could you not do this? And she was like, no, this is fair. And I was like, okay. And like another time, um, we had to do a self-portrait. And my parents, like, I don't know, maybe it's almost like snobby, but like my parents brought me to a lot of museums and like I was raised in like certain high culture environments sometimes. So when I had to do the self-portrait, I drew myself naked because that that's what I knew, like it's it's common to see a naked self-portrait and then i got sent to the principal's office my parents got called and <laughs> oh that shit oh my god man you had it way worse than i did like the only the only difference like that i felt ever was like the fact that i um like i, I grew up in a muslim family rather than a sikh family i felt it did feel a few degrees different than everybody else but it never like manifested itself at school or in school. Like the only thing that might have been different was that uh, I, I was eating halal, right? And so the fact that I had, couldn't partake in certain lunches, um, yeah, that was the only thing. The choices around food that ever came up that made me feel a little bit different. But yeah, nothing like nothing like you experienced. And it could have just been because we had so many different cultures in Mission Hill like a lot and it felt like we had like almost like a bigger community than than say uh, white people at our school it was a half and a half so you never felt like you're marginalized or different um interesting man i feel so bad for you no <laughs> no that, that's definitely not the point of this story i don't i don't feel bad for me it's, it's just here. <laughs> um but that was something else i was going to ask you about is because I know that you were raised Muslim and um, the majority of brown people in our school were Sikh. And then were quite a few Hindu as well. No. Not, okay. no. It was mostly Sikh. In high school, I can't remember. There might have been one person in our grade that was Hindu, but the majority of people were Sikh. 
Okay. And myself and one other guy that you and I know are Muslim, but the majority in Vernon were Sikh. Okay. And so aside from the food, there was no, there was no tension there. Like you still felt like one community in a way. Well, like they, we all grew up on the same street and we we're all just like almost the same age and a few years apart here and there. Um, and the only difference was that they went to the, the Sikh temple, the Gudwara. And um, we went to what was a mosque. It was like a makeshift mosque at the time growing up. Um, and the religions are different, but we spoke the same language. I'm from an area in Pakistan where we speak Punjabi, mm-hmm. where the majority of Pakistan speaks Urdu. So that helped. We spoke the same language so I could mm-hmm. talk to their parents. Um, yeah, it felt like the same community. And the culture is really similar to the way we eat, what we eat, how we speak, the, the traditions. Um, so they play off each other. So you don't really notice much. And what about Ramadan? Uh, since yeah. most people, I guess you were one of the few people practicing it at the school. Uh, how did that feel at the beginning? Well, I, like I know uh, your story, of course, but just for the listeners. Yeah, like Ramadan, it was not difficult for me as a kid. Like when I was younger, I used to keep all the fasts um, up until like high school. High school is where I got a little bit, a little bit lazier but uh in elementary school i uh wasn't hard for me man like i used to be really keen on keeping all the fast and i would uh i wouldn't have a hard time i'd feel i'd actually be quite excited keeping fast and it wasn't it wasn't hard for me mm-hmm. um i don't even know if everybody noticed i can't remember what that felt like growing up because i did it all through elementary school uh without issue uh but then in high school high school i just got lazy you started working out with me. You needed you needed food all the time. <laughs> Once I, I think that was the year. I was like, you know what? I got to put on some muscle. So I can't get all my grams of protein uh, uh, within uh, the hours of sunlight. So, sorry, mom. I got a busy day at school today. Uh, what was your favorite part of Ramadan? Because you've described it to me once. And... Oh, dude. Ramadan is a, it's actually, it's hard now that I live away from home. But if I lived at home, I would partake because it is a pretty great experience that it brings the family closer, it feels, because like you, you fast from sunrise to sunset. And so you wake up uh, in the middle of the night and um, like everyone's making food and preparing and drinking as much water as they can. And then they wake up for prayer, right? So like you wake up, the house is bustling and it smells like cooking and everyone's groggy and tired and you eat. And then you go to bed, you wake up, and uh, you carry on throughout your day. And it's usually easier in the morning, and then as the day progresses, it gets a little bit harder. And the first few days are always the roughest. And then in the evening, you're all, like, waiting. You look, what time is sunset? You're able to look on the computer or whatever. And then everyone's waiting on the table, and you break the fast with a, with a date. Uh, and then you, you, you eat your dinner. Um, and, uh, my favorite experience is, is probably the, the waking up to keep the fast, uh, and then eat at the very end. Like it's basically like Christmas at the end of 30 days of fasting. So it feels that much better. But you did a whole month of fasting and the day of celebration where you take a day off, uh, and the food that's made at Eid and all the family gets together and you go to the mosque for prayer and you see family. And usually at the end of, uh, like the, the Eid prayer. Uh, I give everyone together is like shaking hands and hugging and saying Eid Mubarak. Uh, it's a it's a great day. Like it's like Christmas, but then not only is it with your family, it's with the whole community. Uh, it's a it's a great month. It's a great holy month for us, and I still enjoy it even now when I'm not around family and I get to go back on Eid. It's still a fun time for me. Yeah, yeah. So the connection is a big one, and then you also told me that it it kind of helps you get in tune with your body as well, right? Yeah, I mean, so like it sounds crazy because no food for sunrise to sunset is one thing, but no water is uh, what people seem to be most surprised about. And uh, it, you get used to it. You kind of learn that you don't need to be eating and drinking all the time, and it gives your body a rest. And when I was younger and doing it, and like once you get used to it after a couple of days, you I don't know, you just you feel you definitely feel like lighter cleaner a little bit more clear-headed um i guess i should be doing it this year maybe i'll maybe i'll remember the benefits of it but you do feel quite good 
one thing it makes me think about is uh, the stats around mental illness. Like a lot of the time people think mental illness is like a chemical imbalance, that it's an individual thing. But a lot of the time it's culture-based and the, the culture that you're from influences the type of mental illnesses that you're prone to. For example, like anorexia is something that is very Western. And in many like Muslim countries, it almost doesn't exist. And even they even did a study with a group of women uh, raised in the West, but from a from a pack, uh, their background was from Pakistan, and it was almost just it was also just not prevalent in that group of women. Even though when they looked at all the other women raised in that uh, from that school, there was always a certain percentage that had eating disorders and things like this. So I'd, I'm not sure, but I wonder if Ramadan plays a role in it or if maybe it's just something else from the Muslim teachings that kind of influence you to be more in tune with your body so you're not as prone to these these eating disorders. I don't know. That's tough. Like, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that like anorexia rates in Bamisan are lower. Um, like mental illnesses are there for sure, but when it comes to like eating, at least in my culture, it's like the more you eat, the healthier you are. The more weight you have, the healthier you are across all spectrum. Unless you legitimately are obese. But that that like that window seems much wider in all culture. Especially for the guys. Like, man, as long as I can remember to my grandma, like I need to eat more. Like I look what, what's called uh, they call it dry. Like you look like shriveled up. That's <laughs> why you need to eat more. And even in the women, it's the same thing where, like, you want to be more, um, I don't know, you have a wider window into where you're considered attractive or unattractive, I think. Mm-hmm. And in general, the more you eat, the heavier you are, the healthier you are. That's synonymous. The heavier you are, the healthier you are, always. And so my grandma would always put an extra butter in my food. and <laughs> Ghee, ghee butter, right? Yeah. Well, it's all the same to us, but butter, butter, we call it ghee. Okay, so, okay. Okay. It's all the same to us. Yeah, man. <laughs> but mental illness is still like depression is still there, like anxiety and all that stuff is still there. But I would assume it slightly lower rates and the triggers are a little bit different. Um, but I think what helps us is that we have, we live in bigger families. We're not isolated. And so being in communities and together with your family probably helps a lot rather than being isolated on your own and feeling alone in that certain way. Definitely. Now, we'll get a little bit more personal here, but in the past year, we've been calling a lot because you had some struggles as well with mental illness. Um, You're doing great right now, I think. Do you think maybe that was part what triggered it is this isolation from your family? Because you you were disowned from your family, right? At some point, your mother said, you're not my son anymore because you married a white atheist. And um, you sacrificed your family for a woman and you were disowned from that. Do you think that could have played a big role because you didn't have that family unit at that point? Absolutely. That was a big part of it, actually, feeling like you were feeling like I was in between two families and then all of a sudden left with, with none. And so I had to do a lot of thinking, like deeper thinking about what it meant to be what it means to actually be alone versus what you belong to and where you come from. So that was, uh, took a lot, a lot of digging. But I think that if I had like remained closer to family and had family always there in the wings, I wouldn't have felt like that. Um, cause yeah, back at that time, it truly felt like I was alone because I didn't have either. I didn't feel like I had any resemblance of family. I was just going to be on my own and which I like realized like, isn't true. Uh, and it's only like a feeling, it's a temporary feeling. Because regardless of my mom saying one thing when she was upset, like that still is where I come from. And like no matter what, like I will be always like their their son, like mm-hmm. the brother, a uh, sibling, like a nephew. Um, so it was definitely a feeling and you feel like you're isolated. I felt like I was isolated. But then I realized there's something you can't take from me. And that's the fact that that's where I come from. Yeah. And... Now you're kind of returning to the Muslim faith in a way, right? I guess, I think in your own way, you're exploring mm-hmm. the spirituality of it. Um, but before we get into the reasons that you're kind of returning in, to it, uh, why were the reasons that you kind of left the Muslim faith for a, a while? 
I think um, it's tough to say like leaving it. It's like when you're growing up uh, in a Western culture, it's a lot trickier to feel like you're part of the faith because it's kind of like you're at home life. And when you're growing up, you, when you come to school, you kind of want to be like everybody else. It seems much more easier and much more enjoyable and fun and you want to be like everyone else. And so growing up, it just felt like a burden to carry around like the responsibilities of a religion. So you start to like, hang out with your friends and want to be like them and then the older you get at least for me like i started to realize the benefits that i that would have came if i would have stuck to being a little bit more practicing and doing the things properly and now now at like a little bit older than like a little bit older in their 30s now uh now it's tough i still don't really know like where i sit with it all but i kind of have more of an appreciation for like what the religion teaches and what the principles are mm-hmm. maybe i don't like partake in all the actions but i appreciate it quite a bit more and i think all religions i appreciate more than i ever used to no matter where you come from what your background is and i'm prouder for coming from mine than i used to be say in my late teens early 20s and what's it like for you as a science base guy i mean you studied biology you're like me right you hate when people have an opinion without backing it with facts right you're a factual guy science-based guy how do you kind of mix um believing in allah right with kind of like all your science-based backgrounds how are you mixing the two how it's tough it's like when you hear things from other people that are like uh religious and you hear them say certain things and you're like oh that's not true (laughs) it's hard to be around it it's hard to hear it and you just like let it go because that's what they believe and that's what they think so like what i probably do in my head it's like wherever science like leaves off wherever there's a spot where it's a gray area it's not sure like whatever that's the big bang or uh the origin of planets and space and time you just gotta like insert religion there. Like, hey, maybe like what if? What if this is true? What if that's true? Um, and uh like different experiences in my life, uh, like certain times, it's like you can kind of feel things might go either way. I just kinda keep it to myself. And I'd like to believe there's something um more than us. But uh yeah, I just don't explore that because I know it's a it's a dead end. Like no matter how much you think about it, it's a dead end to certain to a certain point. Yeah. And uh, you just kind of like act like, okay, like what if that is true? What if that's the case? And I think more than anything, what I appreciate from religion is like the teachings and the principles and the stories. Uh, that's what I place the value on rather than what is actually true. Because if you get mm-hmm. down that, it's hard to leave behind what I've learned in education and all that stuff. So it's hard to mix like pragmatism with um, what I came from, what the religion is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's true. But of course, like you, you can do that personally, but if you want to really be a Muslim, you have to believe in, in Allah. Otherwise it just can't. Right. Cause I mean, in the Quran, it does say my mercy embraces all things, unless you don't believe me, then you're fucked. Right? It's true. Those are the, <clears throat> one of the main principles Like you have to believe there's three principles about, about like being a Muslim. And one is like, you have to believe, um, uh, in God, and you have to believe that the prophet was the last uh, messenger. And there's a third belief, and it's just like if you have those three, maybe there's five pillars in total, you're good. And if any one of those are untrue uh, on the day of judgment, they will know, and you ain't getting into heaven. So you have to believe those. And so, you know, I think I got my bases covered. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think as a as a modern Muslim, you're allowed to kind of redefine? what god or allah is to you like because for me uh, i find it such hubris in any religion when people think that we are built in the image of god uh just from the size of the universe also just like with all our flaws and everything um if god is anything to me like i i think about um i forget where the quote comes from bill bill someone says we are all one consciousness experiencing life subjectively. And this consciousness or this connection that we have, whether to each other, whether it be to animals, whether it be to the planet, right? I mean, 
when it comes to hallucinogens, you sometimes experience that connection. And sometimes to me, that could be God when you're kind of, ex sometimes you have these experiences where like everything that there ever has been, everything that ever will be, you're experiencing in that present and you just feel so connected to everything. To me, that could be God. But God looking like me? Hell no. He's got to be better. He's got to be a lot better than me. <laughs> like, he, I don't think he looks, he doesn't take some form, right? He could take every form or no form, but. It's true. It's true. And it's all in the stories. Like, it's hard to, from like a modern day perspective to like, even like fathom what, what God could be to anybody. Um, it's, yeah, I guess I don't really devote much of my time to exploring that like what that means to me these days but that's the issue that i think i have with religion when things are so strict and it's more about what it means like what the book says rather than what it means to you and there's so many ways of like interpretation and um in 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 the islamic culture we put a lot of um faith in what the scholars and the imams and people that like dissect the book uh, say and like whatever they say that's what we go off of and that's what the than... grandfather was Correct. yeah my grandfather is a what they call a beer and so he's kind of like in between so he's he's quite high up uh, in the religious hierarchy and he knows quite a bit he's heard a lot of stories from other elders uh in the community in pakistan so yeah people place a lot of faith in the people that are quite high in the church S similar to a priest uh, and it's less about what it means to you and more about what they say. Mm. And I think there's less room for that in Islam of like what it means to you rather than uh, what they're telling you. And so I, I kind of do wish there was a little more flexibility in the culture, but I think the reason why it appeals to a lot of people is because it is so rigid. Um, and but it seems a lot more rigid in Pakistan than, let's say, where it doesn't... Um in uh like morocco like when i talk to uh, muslims from morocco it seems a lot more flexible than like muslims yeah. in pakistan <clears throat> it varies country to country for sure in pakistan it's quite strict in saudi arabia it's the strictest in dubai mm -hmm. maybe even more so so it depends on where you are and the culture you're in but uh, as for someone who grew up in like a western culture like things like in our culture are quite like, we appreciate flexibility you know, we don't do well with rigid depends on where you're from and how you're raised yeah yeah. Well, we, we've been talking a lot about the good things uh, from religion and how it played a, played a role in your life. And I've got to say, throughout my whole life, you've been one of my friends I've looked up to in many ways. Uh, I think, well, discipline, we're both like that. But you've also, you've been a little bit less wild than me. <laughs> I um, you've always like, I mean, almost every job interview you've went to, you've gotten you've always been that person who's able to like have two drinks and then drive your friends home instead of being like getting drunk all night you've you've always been in quite a bit in control of course there are moments in life where things change but one thing that i've noticed in in a wolfram our relationship and i discovered that recently was that religion caused you to be a liar at some point right and of course you lied to me you lied to a lot of people really close to you and well I forgive you because you're one of my best friends in the world and I un unconditionally love you but it 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 does seem like religion and being raised in a religious family is what kind of forced you to lie and now you're kind of having to get that out of your system like how do I not lie to people so I can you know like how can I be honest and not piss people off or not get rejected and how how are you dealing with that? And do you think I'm right in saying that religion kind of forced you to lie in some ways? Even though like religious religious like kind of preaches not to lie, but you kinda had to. It depends on what you're talking about, you know, like um like we were talking about like what happened in my previous like relationship where I lied about certain things. And so that in that sort of a setting you kind of lie to preserve certain things and uh it's kind of a i don't know if i would say it's from the religion perspective but growing up i did lie just because it would save face from my like my parents and make things quite a bit easier growing up uh, and you kind of get comfortable with the idea 
And could, you'd rather not upset your parents than being honest with them about what you're doing and what you think, because that would hurt them way more. Because there's nothing you can do to change like what you feel or what you think. Um, and yeah, it did stem into my personal life as well. And there's no room for that. Like I would agree with, and it was more of a like on a more of like a fear based thing. Like I lied from, but growing up in a culture, growing up in a culture that's so different from the one that you're uh, raised in. Sorry, you go to school with. It does kind of force you to play like two lives, and where you kind of keep things a secret and you kind of lie about certain things to be able to partake in another. Because if you're honest at home, you're not going to be able to have the ability to, to to live your life the way you want to when you're outside of the house. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's definitely a tricky balance that I know a lot of people from my culture have to do at home. And it gets you comfortable with the idea of lying, and which it, it's not a good thing, I've learned. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, well, you, you mentioned a good term there too saving face and it kind of makes me want to take back what i said two minutes ago by saying oh like you were kind of a liar but maybe that's me being a westerner and saying that because like i know you're an honest person we've i've had many experiences with you to know like i know who you are at your core and i know that you're an honest man and i know like you don't lie in most situations but you do have to save face and that's a little bit more of like an eastern principle right it's like this saving face and in the west we don't have that as much it's true and so like it's it's one thing to be called like a liar through and through but then i think a little bit more accurate is there's certain things that you don't want to be truthful about mm-hmm. and then i feel like in the west like people they, they they want you to be truthful like through and through about everything and then in our culture it's like you know what some of that just isn't your business <laughs> and so uh, like one thing I noticed that from like some of my friends that are um, not white from a different culture, when you explain the like, yeah, you need to tell people certain things. Like if if I'm honest with them about certain things, like, you need to tell me about that. It's not my business. Because my white friends would be like, oh, you need to tell us. Like, all right, how come you weren't truthful with us? They're like, yeah, like, I wouldn't have told you either. Like that's not a big deal. And so it's like, it's one thing to I think a lot of people in like my culture, our culture, kind of understand when you don't want to tell things and you lie about certain things because they would do the same thing in our shoes. Whereas, I think uh, white folks were a little bit more taken back when I wasn't fully honest or oh. when I'm not fully truthful about everything. Um, but in the end, I realized that like either or, it's better to be upfront when you're asked a question or just not answer it if you don't want to answer it rather than lie about it, which is a little bit different from what I was doing, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, um, just to not make this too personal, but to tie in <laughs> tie in like the honesty and everything and w- with relationships, um, nowadays we have such a focus in the West on like love marriages, right? Um, but if you look at a lot of statistics, arranged marriages... I don't know what I think it's like 20 years down the road or even 10 years down the road, they usually report um, higher happiness together, a better satisfaction as a couple. Now, that doesn't mean that arranged marriages mean that you're going to be happier in the end. Of course, that could also be the fact that they come from a similar culture. Um, they have a similar socioeconomic background a lot of the time, because if you're in arranged marriages, you're not going to be marrying outside of the socioeconomic status that your family's from. So there could be a lot of variables there, of course, right? Um, but how do you feel about it now? Like, do you do you think there's some benefit in arranged marriages, or do definitely you think? Like that. Yeah, I definitely think there's some benefits to arranged marriages. So, like, I was in a pretty long relationship before, and I think th- there's pros and cons to either or. But when it comes to what marriages and like raising a family is, I think that. It's probably if you come from a similar socioeconomic background and similar upbringings and you're of like similar mindset and temperament, I think that an arranged marriage can get pretty close to like finding someone that you'll jive with for the rest of your life. And then once you're in an arranged marriage, you kind of feel like you kind of have to stay in it and you kind of build that love rather than the other way around was like where you start off with love and passion. And then you sort of pick up the actual blocks and you make sure that they're 
kind of aligned in a way where you can have a long-term future. Whereas in arranged marriages, it's the reverse. And it might be easier to work on love than it is to work on those actual bigger blocks. Yeah. I know it's kind of crazy to say, um, especially in our culture, but like, I mean, I don't know, like you pick someone who you find attractive from a similar background, you can't figure out love? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there, I, there's this quote from this woman. Uh, I don't even think, I think it was anonymous, but <laughs> she mentioned that um, getting a husband is not so different from getting a new puppy. <laughs> and at first, <laughs> at first, you haven't developed the feelings of love for it yet, <laughs> but expect that you will come to love the puppy one day. And invariably, invariably you do. <laughs> That's exactly true. I feel like that's the case. I mean, what's to say, especially after you, like, say you're with a relationship and it falls apart and you find a new one, like, what's that to say? You, It's the same sort of thing where you just build a new relationship from the scratch up and the ground up with somebody else. Mm-hmm. That's exactly true, man. I, I mean, I would never have thought that way when I was younger in my late teens when they arranged marriages and the possibilities. But, like, now I was like, yeah, you know what? That kind of makes a lot of sense. And people sometimes forget that in the West, it wasn't that long ago either that people didn't always marry out of love. And in fact, like you always hear about like women being the ones who want everything romantic and have the love marriages. But in, in it was like 1967, they did a survey with American college students and 65% of men, but only 24% of women um, said they would marry someone uh, they did not love <clears throat> or uh, uh, wouldn't wouldn't ma- would not marry someone they did not love so it, even back then it was like men were more likely to like look for a love marriages and the women were more likely like okay who who am i just compatible with who's going to give me stability uh so well, it's kind of interesting absolutely, i think man, absolutely like now in today's culture like when you look at like the bachelor and the bachelor in paradise so another like it's an infatuation with like love and like passion and like that all eventually fades away com- comes down to more of like what you want to do with your future but uh yeah man i uh, on the flip side know, you do love ed sheeran lyrics and ed sheeran i do love i'm a big <laughs> not, yeah heartless love, so i'm not too pragmatic when i come to that kind of stuff yeah <laughs> well man i'm sorry buddy i got a i got a meeting coming up here at work though so i gotta let you sounds go good man there. Okay, thanks so much for coming on the show, Usman. I love you, man. And um, hopefully, we'll you'll come back on the show some other time. Obviously, there's love lots to talk too, about. Man, we have uh, another slate of ideas that we can go through. Maybe we'll get my the okay from me first, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll put another longer podcast. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, so this was Without Borders. Please check out www.withoutborders.fyi to support the show and tune in next time. Love you, man. Thanks for having me.